Acts chapter number 7, and as you find your way there, I'd like to begin reading at verse number 20. Now, we're picking up in the midst of Stephen's sermon that he preaches just shortly before he will be stoned to death with the young Saul of Tarsus holding the coats. And uh, Peter is the first martyr of the New Testament church. Now, some of you say, well, I thought Jesus was. No, Jesus wasn't a martyr. Jesus was a savior. And you say, well, what's the difference? Well, a martyr is a good man uh, simply dying for a good cause. But the Bible teaches us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And his death accomplished much more than just making a point to the world. It made the difference in the world. And so Stephen is the first New Testament martyr, and uh, he's recounting the story uh, of God using uh, the children of Israel and calling them, beginning with his covenant with Abraham. But I'd like to begin in verse number 20, where the Bible says, "...in which time Moses was born, and was exceeding fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months." When he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up, nourished him for her own son. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God, by his hand, would deliver them. But they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Madian, and we know it as Midian, where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt. And I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt, saying, Aaron, make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idols 
and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him an house, howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? I'd like to read verse 39 to you once more, and then we'll pray. The Word of God says, To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them. Now notice this phrase, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your people. Father, I pray that this morning you would just anoint me with the unction from on high that's necessary for your word to penetrate the hearts of your people. I pray if there's any amongst us that's lost and undone without Christ, that it would be made known to them today their need of Christ's salvation. Lord, I pray that you would just accomplish your will in our hearts and that we would allow you to through surrendering our will to you. Father, we love you. We thank you for all that you have done and will do. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm interested in the phrase in verse number 39 where the Bible says that in their hearts they turned back again into Egypt. Now, most of you are familiar with the story that we've read this morning. You're familiar with the nation of Israel, uh, the Hebrew children and their wanderings through the desert. You're familiar with how that God, through a high hand and through a blood sacrifice, brought them out of the land of Egypt. You're familiar how that through a Red Sea they passed on dry land by the grace of God and by His strength. But you're also, many of you are familiar with the fact that they spent the next 40 years wandering in a wilderness. A wilderness that should have taken them a few days, maybe a few weeks to pass through. And yet 40 years of their life and an entire generation of them uh, was lost in that desert because of their doubt and unbelief. And you know, as I read this story, I'm, I'm uh, struck by the fact that uh, there are two differing ideas about what Canaan means in the Word of God. Now, some of you are going to get mad. I'm going to burst your bubble. You're going to throw something at me here in a second. But I want to give you biblical truth, and I hope that's okay. I know that many of us have been taught growing up that Canaan is a picture of heaven. We've sang the songs, to Canaan's land I'm on my way. We've sang all the songs about longing for Canaan and heading for Canaan. But if we're really going to be biblical, we'll find that as we study the Word of God, that Canaan was never a picture of heaven. You see, all through the Word of God, Canaan is not a picture of heaven, but is a picture for this day of grace that we live in, uh, of the victorious life that God has planned and provided for His people to enter in by faith and live in victory in Jesus Christ. 
You see, the land of Egypt pictured for us the darkness of sin in the world. It pictured for us our natural state. You and I, every one of us, born sinners into this world. Born into darkness, born into depravity. Uh, But we see how in the land of Egypt, God sent someone to deliver them. Boy, aren't you thankful when we were lost in our sins that God sent someone to deliver us from ourselves to deliver us from our sins. And that prophecy is even given in this passage that we read uh, before us, where the the Bible says that uh, God would raise up a prophet like unto Moses. Moses was a type of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he came and he spoke wondrous things, and God used him in a mighty way. But what was it that took him out of Egypt? Isn't it interesting? Now listen now, and I'll get to preaching here in just a moment. Isn't it interesting uh, that all the wonders couldn't get them out of Egypt? It took the blood. You know that all the miracles that Christ ever performed, there wasn't a one of them that could have saved man from hell. There wasn't a one of them that would have been good enough. Oh, I know that we've got a lot of uh, professors today and a lot of academics today that'll tell you that Jesus was just a good man with a good program, with good policies, uh, that was very compassionate and very loving. And they like to imitate his life and they like to imitate his uh, principles. But can I say that you don't get to heaven by trusting his principles. You get to heaven by trusting his person. Uh, It wasn't the miracles that he did that redeemed mankind from hell. It wasn't the blinded eyes that he opened. It wasn't the lame legs that he gave strength to, but it was on Calvary's hill when he went and met our sin face to face. He didn't just bear it, he became it, and he became our sin and paid for our sin debt. It wasn't the wonders that brought him out of Egypt, it was the blood that brought him out of Egypt. With that lamb slain, we preached on it last week, how that pictures our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if they come out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and we could preach all day on the pictures that are found there... But as they come out of Egypt, they come into a desert place, into a wilderness. And there they spend the next 40 years of their life. God had a plan and a purpose for them. God has a plan and a purpose for every one of His children. And some of you are saying, well, you know, yeah, He knows where I'm going to work, what I'm going to drive and everything. And I do believe God cares about that. But can I say to you that there's a more important plan that God has for each and every one of us. And that's for us to live in faith and for us to live in victory through Jesus Christ. Now, when I say victory, I don't mean victory like the, like the forked tongue preachers on TV mean victory. When I say victory, I don't mean paying your mortgage off. I don't mean getting a new car. When I say victory, I mean conquering the flesh, not eradicating it, friend, but conquering it. I mean bringing it under subjection to Jesus Christ. I mean living and seeing prayers answered, seeing God move, seeing souls saved. I'm talking about living with the joy of Jesus Christ in your heart. I can say unequivocally, without contest, without disputation, that it's the will of God for every single believer to live in faith in Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. It doesn't have to be discussed. It doesn't have to be prayed about. We know that it's the will of God for us to live in victory in Jesus Christ. And so this was the will of God for the nation of Israel. But yet they spent 40 years missing the will of God. And there was an entire generation that knew nothing but Egypt and wilderness. And can I say to you that the great tragedy of the casual Christianity and the lukewarmness today is that we're raising generation after generation of young people that know nothing but Egyptian darkness and wilderness wandering. They know nothing of the power and blessing of God on their life. 
There was a Canaan land. There was a promised land that God had for them. And I, I just want to give you three reasons that I believe this is a picture of the victorious Christian life. And I won't labor on them because it's not my message. But I see in the, in the land of Canaan that it was a place of foes. Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean it was a place of battles. It was a place of giants. It was a place of enemies. Can I say to you that if I'm going to have to get to heaven and keep fighting the way I'm fighting now, it ain't going to be much of heaven for me. Can I say that if I get to heaven and find out that the enemy is still there, if I get to heaven and find out that there's still a battle to be fought, I know that the war was won on Calvary, but you're blind if you don't think there's battles every day in our spiritual walk. This is a spiritual warfare, and if Canaan pictures heaven, then I'm to believe that in heaven there are giants and Philistines and battles and trials and suffering. I don't believe that there's any of those things in heaven, do you? I believe we enter into our rest, don't you? But I do believe that on this current walk, this current life that we're in, the Christian walk is a place of battles. Uh, there's a reason that God gave us armor. It's because we're in a battle. There's a reason God gave us a leader and a captain of our salvation. It's because we're in a battle. I mean, the greatest lie that the devil will ever tell you is that there is no fight and no battle and no difficulty in Christianity. Can I say that if you're not living the Christian life, there's not much of a fight. If you're living like the world, it's not much of a fight. If you're just floating downstream like any old dead fish and going the way the world does, you won't find too hard of a time. But the moment that you take a stand, the moment that you tell your flesh no, the moment that you say, I'm going to do something for Jesus Christ, mark her down, friend, the arrows will be released, uh, the catapult will be flung at you, the bullseye is drawn on you, this is a warfare, and we better get it through our minds that it's a battle. It's a place of foes, it's a place of enemies. We could go through and look, and you'll find uh, the believer's three enemies pictured in these stories, but we know that we have three enemies chiefly. And those enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. We understand that the world is constantly and consistently opposed to God. We understand that the devil uh, is, a, I don't know if we'd say an arch enemy. I, I don't know. He's a defeated enemy. I know that. Uh, but he always stands as the antagonist against God. And we understand that our greatest enemy is the person we look at in the mirror when we woke up this morning. Some of you said we have double mirrors. I saw my wife. Well, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just telling you. Amen. We understand that we fight battles and fight enemies every day. And if you're ever going to live for Jesus Christ, you're going to have to fight some battles. I see it's a place of foes. Listen to what it says in the book of Numbers in chapter number 13. Uh, this is whenever God at Kadesh Barnea had commanded Moses to send out spies. And it says, And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search, uh, to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in their own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Can I say, listen, friend, if you're really going to try to do something for God, you better do it by faith, because you do it by the flesh, and it'll eat you alive. Isn't that what it says? They said, this is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And can I say as a pastor, and some of our church folk can admit the same thing, and if you've spent any time in church, uh, you could say the same thing, that you've seen people uh, that trying to live for God just ate them up. Just gone, just burnt out, burnt to a crisp. 
You say, oh, preacher, are you saying we ought not live for God? No, I'm saying you can't live for God except by faith. That's the only means through the crucified life. That's the only way you're ever going to serve God. If you're in this thing through the arm of flesh, the arm of flesh will always fail you. I see it was a place of foes. But listen to what it says in that same chapter in verse number 27. It says, And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. Now, what are they saying when they say this is the fruit of it? Well, it says in verse 23, And they came unto the brook of Eshcol, and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes. And they bear it between two upon a staff. And they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. You see, they took, and when they cut this cluster of grapes down, it took two grown men carrying it between a staff to haul it back to the Israelite camp. Can I say that the victorious life is a place of many foes, but it's a place of much fruitfulness? You remember what Christ said in John chapter number 15? He said, Abide in me, and ye shall bear much fruit. The truth of the matter is, the reason we're not fruitful is we're not abiding in him. Well, I expected it to get quiet when I said that. Let me tell you why, because that hits every one of us from the back door to the pulpit from both sides. The reason we're not bearing fruit is we're not abiding in him. He said, without me, ye can do some things. No, that's not what he said. Did he say, without me, you can do most things if you've got a good enough program? No, that's not what he said. Did he say, without me, you can do anything you could imagine if you get enough people together? No, he said, without me, you can do nothing. If we're going to do anything for God, it's going to have to, have to be through Jesus Christ. You say, what do you mean through Jesus Christ? Through abiding in Him. You say, He's the true vine. We're the branches. We get out of Him. And I don't mean losing your salvation. I don't mean what some folks call falling from grace. I mean when we start living in rebellion and disobedience. We're still a child. You say, how do you know? Well, you ever had a rebellious child? If you've ever had one, you've had one. Amen? It's still your child, though. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about when we live in disobedience and self-will. When we cut the branch off from the vine. When we cease to abide in Him, we, we quit bearing fruit. It's only through Him that it's possible. But can I say to you, that's, that's the negative side. People say, oh, preacher, you're so negative. Well, y'all only listen to the first hour and a half of my preaching, then i got to close. If you stuck around for the last hour and a half, you'd realize how sweet I am. You you say, oh, well, what's the sweet side? The sweet side is this. There's fruit so big you couldn't eat it if you tried. There's blessings so big you couldn't shout it out if you had eternity to do it. I mean, there's goodness of God to be bestowed upon the child of God. What does the Bible say? I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the hearts of men what God hath prepared for them to love Him. I'm saying God's got big things for us if we'll just serve Him. God's got big things for us. I don't mean some new car. Hey, God may bless you with a new car. I hope you give me a ride in it. I'm not opposed to that. But if we think that God's blessing on us consists of a new car or a bigger house or better clothes, that shows that we're just as carnal as an old goat when there's people dying and going to hell, when there's families being wrecked. Hey, if we're uh, working on God to fix our debt when our families are wrecked, we need to get our priorities straight. God can do big things, big things. It's a place of much fruitfulness. But I want you to notice, listen to what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 29. God is uh, recounting the law again to them. 
And he says this, Then I said unto you, now he's talking history, saying I said this to you at one time. Then I said unto you, Dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God, which goeth before you, he shall fight for you, according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where thou hast seen, how that the Lord thy God bare thee, as a man doth bear his son. In all the way that ye went until ye came into this place. What place? Canaan. But listen to this. He says, yet in this thing, ye did not believe the Lord your God. It's a place of many foes. It's a place of much fruitfulness. But it's a place of mandated faith. He says, I'll tell you why you never entered in. You never entered in because you never believed me. Can I, can I make a simple statement and then I'm going to get to preaching. Let me just make this simple statement. We have as much of God as we want. No more, no less. If we want more of God, we can have Him. He said, draw nigh unto me and I'll draw nigh unto you, saith the Lord in the book of James. The reason we don't have more victory in our life is we're not willing to trust Him for more victory in our life. There's a lot of people in this room, I'd promise you. And you say, well, who is it, preacher? I don't know hearts. But I just know in a group this size, I guarantee you, there's people right now in this room that they want victory over something in their life. There's some sin in their life that they give anything to get rid of. They're ashamed of it. They know it's wrong. They've wrestled with it and wrestled with God about it, but they can't get past it. And they can't get past it because they won't just trust God and give it up to Him. They won't just get rid of it. You say, what do you mean by get rid of it, preacher? Well, there's some things I understand. You know, if you're struggling with thoughts of the mind or with an attitude of the heart, you can't pull your mind out, you can't pluck your heart out. I understand that. But there's a lot of stuff that God take away from us if we just let go of it. You know what Paul said? Paul said, give none occasion to the flesh. You know what that means? Uh, that means if you've got something that's a temptation in your life, get rid of it. Don't try to build your willpower by allowing it to be dangled in front of you and choosing to not partake in that sin. Get rid of it. Uh, your, uh, your holiness is more important than your pride. If you've got to do it through getting it out of your life, do it through getting it out of your life, whatever it may be. This is only accomplished through faith. But when I read in the Word of God, I read that the children of Israel did not enter in. An entire generation, anyways. There was a generation that came after them whom, uh, and you saw the usage in Acts chapter 7 of the word Jesus. That's the uh, New Testament use of the Old Testament uh, name Joshua. And he led them into the nation of Israel. But an entire generation that would not go. Why was it? Can I give you this? They were trying to drag their bodies into Canaan. But the stark fact is their hearts were still in Egypt. Isn't that what it says in verse number 39? Look at it again. Acts chapter 7, verse 39. It says, To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turn back again into Egypt. I'll tell you the reason that we don't see victory. It's because in the stark reality of it, we don't want to be in Canaan. We'd rather be in Egypt. This is a heart matter. And I don't know how much liberty God's going to give me to preach this. I hope he gives me lots. Because, friend, we need it this morning. We need to get this through our mind that if we want to live in victory, if we want to have a productive Christian life, if we want to have victory over sins in our life, if we want to live for Him, it is ours for the taking. It's been paid for by Calvary. It's been paved by Jesus Christ. All we have to do is be willing to get our hearts out of Egypt and trust Him to take us where we need to go. 
That's why the church is in such awful shape. And I don't necessarily mean our church. Our church is doing pretty good, I reckon. I don't know. The church is not really measured by how many people are in the pews or how many zeros is in the bank account. It's measured by the heart's condition of the people. I don't know what your heart condition is. But I just mean the church in general. The reason we're, we're struggling and suffering and suffocating is because the truth of the matter is we live six days a week with our heart in Egypt and then we come in and try to act like we're in Canaan on Sunday. We live in the world six days out of the week and then we go and we put our nice clothes on and we grab our King James Bible and we come in and we smile and we say, boy, it's good to be in the Lord's house. When the truth of the matter is we haven't spoken to God in six days. We haven't spent time with the Lord in six days. And then we wonder why we are spiritually starved. I want you to notice five things very quickly that I see associated with having their hearts in Egypt. And the first I want you to notice is very, very simple. It's found in verse number 39. It says, to whom our fathers would not obey. Can I say that one of the sure signs that your heart is in Egypt is disobedience? Let me tell you something. We, at our very core, are rebels and insurrectionists. At our very core, we loathe authority. We detest boundaries. And if we don't crucify our flesh, we'll let that govern us. I've met young people, and can I say I've met adults too, that just dared you to knock that chip off their shoulder. Dared you to tell them, what to do. You can see it on the look on their face. And I joke about it all the time, but it's true. Pay attention next time you see someone pulled over. And look at the look in their eyes. It is within the heart of humankind to rebel against God. What do you think this new, uh, this uh, new, what am I trying to say here? This new wave, this, uh, this uh, new uh, genre of militant atheism is all about. It's about trying to dethrone God and rob Him of His authority. You know that this world doesn't have a problem with Jesus in a manger. You say, oh, I don't know about... Wait till Christmas time. I mean, businesses, they don't care if they do terrible all through the year. They know they're going to make it up in about two or three months through October, November, and December. The world don't have a problem with Jesus in a manger. Some of you say, oh, well, no, the world has a problem with Jesus on a cross. No, not exactly. Not exactly, because uh, even the Catholics celebrate Good Friday. I know he wasn't crucified on a Friday, but don't tell them. It'd mess up our three-day weekend. Amen? I, I know that. No, see, the world don't have a problem with Jesus on a cross as a martyr. You say, well, you know, it's the empty tomb. No, no. At, at least the chocolate bunny and the peeps folks don't have a problem with it. No, the world doesn't have a problem with an empty tomb. You know what the world has a problem with? Crown him with many crowns. King of kings, Lord of lords. That's what this world hates. That's what this world detests. What was it that they said to Moses, who's a picture of Christ? They said, who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? What was it they said whenever Christ was on trial? They said, we will not have this man to rule over us. They'd rather have Caesar than the Savior. Why? Because they detest divine authority. And one of the sure earmarks that your heart is not right with God is when you live in disobedience. You know what Christ said? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
Oh, we can brag on him, we can praise him, we can shout the rafters down, but if we're not living for him, it doesn't mean anything. If we're not obedient to him, it means nothing. And here's the question, how does your life, if you measure it by that ruler of obedience, how does your life measure up? I see disobedience. But I see not only disobedience as an earmark that your heart is in Egypt, but I want you to notice the second thing. Look at verse number 40. The Bible says, saying unto Aaron, make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. Now, let me just tell you basically what they're saying. Most of you picked up on it, but I'm going to put this in Appalachian American for you, okay? This is basically what they said. Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days in communion with God. And the children of Israel, they're starting to get nervous and starting to get antsy. They're starting to look at their clock and wondering if they're going to beat the Methodist to Shoney's, you know? And you know what they said? They looked at Aaron and they said, Aaron, why don't you make us some gods? Because this Moses fella, he just ain't cutting it anymore. Can I say that disobedience is an earmark that your heart is in Egypt? But can I say that dissatisfaction is an earmark that your heart is in Egypt? Nothing more tragic than a Christian that gets dissatisfied with Jesus Christ. You know why the world appeals to us? Because Jesus doesn't appeal to us. Do you know why sin appeals to us? Because holiness doesn't appeal to us. Do you know why it is that the world appeals to us, but God doesn't? Because we're still in Egypt where that's the norm. You see, our hearts are still there. We're longing for the garlic and the cucumbers and the fish and loathing the manna that God's setting before us. Isn't that what they did? It says they loathed this bread. And they said, where is the fish and the garlic and the cucumber and the leeks. They'd sooner eat Egyptian food in Egyptian bondage than eat heavenly manna in divine liberty. Can I say that that's such a mirror, descriptive image of the church today? We'd sooner have what the world has. We'd sooner have the sin they have, the music they have, the clothes they have, uh, the opinions that they have, the acceptance that they have, and sit in bondage like everyone else than walk a holy path and eat heavenly bread and have divine liberty. That's what we want. You know why it is preaching don't satisfy us? Because we don't want preaching. You know why reading our Bible ain't appealing to us? Because we don't love our Bibles. Because our hearts are still in Egypt. I see dissatisfaction. I want you to notice a third thing. Look at verse number 41. It says, And they made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Now picture it with me. Forty days have passed. And they're looking up on that mountain. And it didn't look like any old mountain, you understand. I mean, when they looked on this mountain, it was thundering. It was smoking. It was on fire. There was lightning. They knew the presence of God was on that mountain. And don't you imagine that for the first three or four days, they all just kind of sat, awestruck, looking up at this mountain. And maybe as a week or two passed, you know, pretty soon you saw some of the kids, they started, you know, kicking their feet a little bit. I mean, yeah, it was thundering. Yeah, it's the presence of God, but it had been there for six, seven days. It was the same presence of God. And, you know, they just kind of started wandering around. And then there went the mamas to go wrangle them and try to get them into, into order and try to make sure they didn't hurt each other. 
And then finally the men realized, well, I got to get up. I got to tend to some things. And pretty soon, here's the presence of God on the mountain. And here they are occupied with the mediocrity of everyday life. And they said, we need a new God. Can I say that dissatisfaction is an earmark? But can I say that distractions are an earmark that our hearts are in Egypt? Oh, I don't mean distractions like the fellow that opens his candy in church or a cell phone that goes off. I mean life distractions. I mean when we live our life totally consumed with the mediocrity of every day and totally oblivious to the throne room of grace that's open to us and to the companion that we have in the blessed Son of God, to the glorious truth of our born-again condition, and to the immaculate ideal that we're seated together in heavenly places with Him, that we could ever get distracted, that we could ever get drawn away from this chief and great labor that God has bestowed upon us to win people to Christ, to live for Him, to be a light to a lost and dying world, that we could ever get so caught up with our everyday, with our jobs, with raising our families, that we push God to the back burner and say, Lord, I just don't have time for you anymore. Notice what it says, they rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Boy, isn't that indicative of today. Rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Boy, look at this big old house we paid for. Look at this beautiful car that we're driving around. Look at these fine clothes we bought. Look at this fat bank account. Look at this retirement plan. Look at this new toy that we've got. Look at all these things. And how sad it is that as they bragged about all the little things that they did. Don't you imagine that after 40 days and there were things that had to be done. I understand that. They had to eat. I don't, well, I guess they did. Moses didn't. But they had to eat. They had to do these things. And, and don't you know that there were conversations like this that went on? You know, we kind of think of that as being a totally isolated and removed world. But I mean, you know, men are men, women are women, homes are homes. And, and don't you imagine that there was maybe some exchanges like this? The husband comes in, he's been out, he's been doing things, and he comes into the tent and his wife has something. I don't know what they'd make. Goat pie, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and, and there it is, and it's made, and, and, it's, and he sits down, and he eats a little bit of it. You know, he puts salt on it before he tastes it and gets that look, amen. And, and you know, he eats it, and, and she says, well, you know, how is it, honey? And he says, well, you know, it's pretty good. And she says, well, I worked all day on it. He says, well, that's wonderful, honey. He says, I've been out, and, you know, I had the, the, the sickle in my hand. I, I mowed down some of the grass that's out there, and I, I watered the animals. And she says, well, that's a good job, honey. All the while, the presence of God is in the background on the mountain. And the work of God is being done. And there they stand rejoicing in the simplest and most insignificant things. And don't you wonder sometimes if God... I'm thankful we don't come to that mountain. We come to the holy city, Jerusalem. I'm thankful for that. It's what the book of Hebrews chapter 13 tells us. But don't you think that sometimes God, it just breaks his heart as we see, as he sees us so proud of ourselves that we got a new promotion, got something paid off, bought something new. And all the while, people lost and on their way to hell. All the while, the work of God to be done. You say, preacher, are you opposed to having those things? God bless you for having them. But don't let them become idols. Don't let them take the place of God in your life. Because that's what they did. They took that golden calf. They said, whew. There's never been anybody make a golden calf like I just made. Look at this golden calf that Aaron has fashioned. Boy, don't we have the most beautiful and best golden calf. And you know, there came a time when Aaron was face to face with Moses and he had to give an explanation. 
And uh, Moses gave an explanation like most of your kids gave when they set the house on fire. Just ridiculous. You know what he said? He said, we threw the gold in there, Moses. <laughs> and out it came, a golden calf like that. You know why he said that? Let me tell you why kids say dumb things. And adults too sometimes. But you ever has your child ever said something to you and you thought about going and getting them tested because what they said was so dumb? You know why they say that? Because they don't know what else to say. They have no excuse. There's going to come a day when we're going to stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're going to give an account for the things that we've done. What will our excuse be on that day when God gave us all things pertaining unto life and godliness and we squandered all that God had given us just to have a bigger bank account or a nicer house? I see distractions. I want to give you another one. Look closely at our text. It says in verse number 42, uh, Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. Can I say to you that not only disobedience and dissatisfaction and distractions, but I think deception is a good earmark that your heart is in Egypt. You know what it means when it says God turned and gave them up? It means that God finally said, all right, you want to worship them? Go ahead and worship them. I won't stand in your way any longer. And I'm going to try to be very careful in what I say because I don't want to give any misrepresentation. But can I say to you that there comes a point in our lives where God gives us exactly what we want. Happened in Paul's life, you remember? Paul said, I'm going to Jerusalem. We always quote it. We love this verse. I've heard some of the best sermons I've ever heard preached preach from this verse. But none of these things move me. Neither count on my life so dear. The only problem is when Paul says that, the none of these things that moved him he was talking about was the witness of the Holy Spirit through prophets, was the witness of the Holy Spirit in his own heart and life. You see, God had told Paul, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul said, I'm going to Jerusalem. He had good intentions. He said, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. He said, I could wish myself accursed. That my kinsfolk might be redeemed. He wanted to see him saved, but God had said, no, Paul. Paul said, well, I'm going, Lord. The Lord said, okay, Paul. Okay. You want to go? Go. You fight with God long enough, he'll give you what you want. And I see Christians all the time just trying to make the best out of their broken life. I see Christians all the time, and maybe I'm guilty of it. Maybe you're guilty of it. Living in utter defeat and bragging over the little victories to try to convince ourselves that we're doing something. He, he just gave them up. He said, you want to go that way? Go that way. Let me tell you something. It, it troubles me when I see God sweep into a person's life like a wrecking ball. And I've seen it. Do you remember what it says in the book of Hosea as God set boundaries for the nation of Israel? You stick with me. This is important. I want you to get this. He set some boundaries for the nation of Israel. And you know what he said? He said because they had crossed those boundaries, he said, I will uh, come upon you as a moth and I'll corrupt you. We see that in people's lives. You, You ever see someone just go sour? I have. People that used to have the joy of the Lord. Now every time you see them, they're just sour. Just upset. Just got a problem all the time. And then I've seen the next thing happen. He said, because you wouldn't listen, he said, I'll come among you like a lion. He said, I'll tear you to pieces. And I've seen that happen. I've seen people in sick beds because it was out of the will of God. 
I've seen people stand beside freshly dug graves because they were out of the will of God. You say, preacher, that's judgmental. I don't have time for an argument about being judgmental. I'm trying to give you truth this morning. You get out of the will of God and it can wreck your life. But then there's a third thing that God said. He said, if you won't listen when I come as a moth, and if you won't listen when I come as a lion, you know what he says? He says, I will go. I will go. If we was more spiritual, we'd be terrified at that. I will go. I'm thankful he'll never leave us nor forsake us. But there is a sense in which the power and presence of God departs from our lives. And there is a sense in which we wrestle with God long enough, he'll say, all right, I will go. And I worry when God is ringing my bell. I worry when God is crying my name. I worry when God is rattling my cage. But let me tell you when you better worry, friend, is when he stops. Because that means he can't get your attention except you hit the bottom first. You know what he said here? He said, I'll send you away into Babylon. He said, I can't get your attention. So I'll just let you go into Babylon. There's a lot of Christians. They're not in the wilderness anymore. They're in Babylon. Their lives are wrecks because God couldn't get their attention. I want to show you one final thing. I'm done. Look what it says down in uh, verse number 44. This is sort of, uh, you, have to read, you have to read what's there and what's not there. I've told you about that before where it says this. He says, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. Can I give you the greatest earmark that your heart is in Egypt? Listen carefully. It's disregard. Disregard. You know how Stephen sums this all up? He goes on in in verse number 45 to say, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus, that's Joshua, into the possession of the Gentiles whom God drave out before the face of our fathers under the days of David. Now he's tying the presence of God, the tabernacle of God, with the power of God. And you know what he says? He goes down this big laundry list. He says they wouldn't obey Moses. They didn't care anything for the mountain of God. They disobeyed Him. They turned their back on Him. They followed after other gods. God sent them into Babylon. And you know what it says? He says, in the whole time, the presence of God was there. The presence of God that would go on to lead the next generation into Canaan. The presence of God that had the strength to conquer their foes. The presence of God that had the holiness to sanctify them. The presence of God that was given from heaven, that was all that was needed to have victory. It was there the whole time. But they disregarded it. We're all waiting for God to give us what we need when the truth is He's given us what we need in His Son. We're all waiting on God, aren't we? We're all waiting on God. I've said this before. We always talk about God giving us liberty in the service. Oh, Lord, just give us liberty. Give us liberty. 
But, you know, I sometimes wonder if the Lord's saying, why don't you give me liberty in the service? We're all just waiting on God, aren't we? And yet I just wonder if God's not waiting on us. Waiting on us to surrender. Waiting on us to submit. Waiting on us to wave that white flag. Waiting on us to say, all right, Lord, I'm done doing it my way. I'm going to do it your way. It's where it all starts, isn't it? Had the presence of God and they esteemed it lightly. And yet today, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be. Some of you came to church today for a sermon. Some of you came for a song. Some of you came for a handshake. But I wonder how many of us came for a meeting with God. I wonder how many of us came to meet with a thrice holy God and to surrender our hearts and lives to Him and to say, Lord, I want you to take a stroll through my life and see if there be any wicked or unclean thing within me. Lord, take it away. I wonder how many of us came for service. I wonder how many of us came for victory today.